Again, our thanks to those who minister in music to us. We appreciate that. And uh, also, I'm going to give a challenge to our church family here. And just say, what would happen if you were to move up and we were to sit together as a church family? I'm just saying, do you eat with a family, with everybody spread out in all different parts of your house? I mean, let's, uh, you know, just next time, not necessarily right this moment, but think about it next time you come and say, let's try to sit together uh, up in the front part. I am not a person that's going to hurt you, I promise. Uh, you have some safety there um, in sitting even up closer. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 27, and it is a dramatic portion of scripture. Uh, it's rather lengthy, and I'm going to um, sort of jump in here and uh, reread some of this again that we looked at last week, and I would like to encourage you to, even if you don't want to follow along, which um, you're more than welcome to, but just sometimes you might want to just hear it, how it unfolds, it does read as if it is an eyewitness account of some very dramatic travel on a ship, and you got Paul, who's been arrested now for two years and has appealed to Caesar, he is now making his way from Caesarea on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean to Italy to go to Rome. I'm going to pick it up um, in verse 4. After they stopped along the way there in Sidon, we put out to sea and we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. At this time of year, the winds are going to now be coming from the west and sometimes from the northeast, depending on what, uh, which particular storms are facing. But it makes sailing west very difficult. And when they had sailed through the sea, along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship, an Egyptian ship, sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. And when we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off of Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a certain place called Fair Havens, which was near which was the city of Lycia. And when considerable time had passed on the voyage, was now dangerous, since even the fast, that is Passover, was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And he said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with damage and great loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. I'm sure that's something they didn't want to hear. But the centurion, the guy in charge, the Roman soldier, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing northeast and southeast and spend the winter there. And when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had gained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long there, rushed down from the land a violent wind called Eurachilo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. And running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Now, can you sense the danger of this storm now? 
And after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship and fearing that they might run aground in the shallows off of, of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor and so let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. That's a sign of desperation. They're at the point now where they're trying to get the ship as high as they can in the water so they won't sink. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small storm was assailing us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. It seems to me that text you ought to highlight because that sort of gives the overall impression of how dangerous and difficult the situation was. Verse 21, when they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. And yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God." And it will turn out exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you may again instruct our hearts with this portion of your word. Help us, we pray, to understand more than just the facts that are recorded here of this text, of the various cities, of the various stages of this disaster on board this ship, but we pray that you would help us, Lord, to see that you, by your own sovereign hand, were at work in that situation and that you're at work in our lives. Help us to see, we pray, the wonders of Christ, who is clearly portrayed in this text as well. We ask it in his name. Amen. Book entitled, In Peril on the Sea, is a true story about a widow named Ethel Bell. And she and her two children, ages 11 and 14, a boy and a, a daughter and son, uh, were traveling across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa, going back to the States. And uh, the, the year is 1942. They are on a cargo ship. Uh, her husband had just recently passed away. They had both been serving in missions at some point. And uh, needless to say, they're on the, um, at the beginning of the World War II. And without any warning, a German U-boat, which is their version of a submarine, uh, torpedoed that ship on which they were traveling. And so Ethel and her two children, along with a bunch of other individuals on that cargo ship, were scrambling just to stay alive, and they found themselves with one of the things to grab hold on was a lifeboat, or a life raft, I guess you'd say. It was sort of like a, a square box, and had some supplies that had been left in it. And so a bunch of them climbed on aboard, and it ended up being that they were like 15 men, Ethel Bell, and then her two children, on this cramped together on this small little life raft. 
And they were on that raft for 20 days, almost three weeks. And here they are facing relentless heat, facing intense conflict between them on the little raft as to who's going to do what, how much you get to eat, all those kind of things. There's lots of arguing going on, conflict. And there was threats, obviously, of dehydration and even starvation. Now, during those perilous days on the raft, Ethelbel exemplified incredible courage, a calmness of spirit, and a selfless care for her two children who were obviously in a very stressful situation. And even though some passengers mocked her and made fun of her and laughed at her, she nonetheless prayed often and throughout the day with her children aloud, even though everyone else was just sitting there watching them and he couldn't escape everyone's ears hearing exactly what was being said. But nonetheless, she courageously spoke of her reliance upon God as, as she was being witnessed by all those on that passengers on that little raft, all these unbelieving male passengers that she didn't know very well at all, they didn't know her. Eventually they were rescued by a passing ship, a freighter ship came by. And no wonder Ethel Bell obviously no doubt contemplated what God did in her life after the fact. I'm sure she reflected on it, and her kids must have reflected on it for the rest of their lives as they thought about how it impacted the lives of even those other survivors years later. Um, and it's interesting to think of what these survivors on this raft, the, the raft, they were thrown into a situation where they saw clearly portrayed before them, this is how faith, the faith of Ethel Bell, was lived out before them in dire circumstances. Her reliance on God was on display every day. Now, I'd like to ask a question or two here, and I'd like to uh, wonder to have us think together. Do you ever wonder what God is up to when you're thrown into a situation where you are in the midst of a storm, a storm in your life that just throws things upside down, puts you in a situation where you're like, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know what in the world I'm going to do. Could it be that God has sovereignly permitted various painful problems that come into your life and come to my life to test our faith, to begin to sort of make it clear where is your faith? Is your faith in yourself? Is your faith in your circumstances? Is your faith in Almighty God? And clearly for this situation, for us, I want us to think even more broadly, could it be that God has put these painful and difficult circumstances in our lives at times because he's looking to make a gospel impact on various unsaved family, unsaved friends, and the people around us that perhaps we don't know as well, but they perhaps are going through their own storms and they need to see faith put on display. I think that is the scenario that's unfolding here in Acts chapter 27, as I've said last week. Uh, Paul, as a prisoner, is in chains. He's being transported, as I said, from the east coast of the Mediterranean to up to the northwest coast in Rome, and several times in the account. As you read through the entire chapter, it is obvious not only to Paul, but even to all of the passengers on that ship, that they are dealing with the fact that death for them very likely is imminent. 
And after two weeks for uh, Ethel Bell, two weeks of an intense storm at sea, with all sorts of, I'm sorry, if Paul and uh, his group there in, in Acts 27, they're on the ship there, they're on two weeks also. I'm, I'm thinking of the other stories, three weeks for Ethel Bell. Two weeks got Paul on the ship with everyone else, been just thrown here and there by this storm. It was relentless. It just kept going, two weeks. And the waves have moved them around to where they don't even know where they are located anymore. They can't get their bearings by the stars. And now they've moved, uh, run, the ship has run aground in the shallow waters off the coast of an island called Malta. And the waves are just crashing up against the ship and it's literally breaking apart. So the question I raise, if you think of Paul being in that situation, is this. How did Paul make the most of this dangerous situation, this dangerous opportunity to make an impact on the 273 other people on that ship? Because as I said last time, it seems to me helpful to understand this text by comparing it to Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. I don't know if you have that written inside, but that's important to understand as I interpret this text. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunities that unfold in your life. So, I raised the question, brought it out a little bit more, not only to Paul, but to us. How can the followers of Jesus make the most of difficult opportunities to impact unbelievers around us? Last time we explored the issue of the fact that we can find strength within the bonds of Christian fellowship. And we pointed out the fact that Paul was not alone. He had other brothers there with him. But secondly, today we're going to look at this point, and that is Paul and the followers of Christ can rest assured that we belong to God no matter what. We belong to God no matter what. During this treacherous voyage, Paul exhibited, I think, again and again, a kind of amazing character trait of selfless courage. It is Paul who begins to speak to the fears of the people on this ship. He is speaking to them with advice. He is speaking to them often about what's going to happen, what needs to happen in order to survive this thing. And here he is a prisoner himself. He's surrounded by all sorts of other prisoners who are likely chained, and he's got all sorts of soldiers and guards around him, and yet he displays a calm bravery that was clearly a, the fruit of the fact that he was not so focused on himself. He was not obsessed with his own safety. He's thinking of his concern about people around him. It's amazing. And I would dare say, years earlier, Paul would not have been any, he would not have had any concern at all, any compassion toward a Roman soldier. He wouldn't have had any concern or compassion toward these Gentile prisoners that are all around him. But his heart had been changed. His life had been transformed. His priorities now have been rearranged such that now his life was lived in service to his master and king, Jesus Christ. Look at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, Now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. 
For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong. The God to whom I belong. What did he say? God said to him, don't be afraid. Paul's life, he understood, was not his own. He had been bought with a price. And Christ claims ownership of those he redeemed by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. It is Christ who claims ownership of those he purchased and redeemed by the giving of his son. Now, as I've thought about that principle, I've thought again back to the context of 1942 and Ethel Bell. Do you think for a moment that Ethel Bell, in the, in the difficulties of realizing they don't have enough supplies to survive the number of days they're going to be on that raft, they don't know when they're ever going to be rescued, do you think at any moment she considered pushing her two children overboard so that the rations would go further? Of course not. What didn't even go through her mind? Would she for one moment have thought of feeding her children to the sharks? Which, by the way, they saw numerous ones. And the answer, of course not. It's ridiculous. It's unthinkable. But Paul is sort of focusing on a similar thought here in the midst of a storm in which he's about to die, perhaps, and others around him. Paul is enjoying a calming sense of this wonderful truth that he is secure with God. He belongs to God. Never for one moment did Paul fear that the intense nor'easter, which is the kind of winds that he described there, verse 14, never did he have that kind of uh, fear that just totally overwhelmed him in that danger, nor the times when he's with all of these riots that broke out, for example, in Ephesus, nor was he so filled with fear at the threat of the Roman authorities using capital punishment against him to take, him, take his life, he didn't fear that any of those things would ever separate him from God and his relationship with God. It's like a bride who belongs to her bridegroom, like a sheep that belongs to its shepherd, like a child that belongs to his or her father. Genuine believers will never be separated from the God who called them the God who first foreknew them, the God who predestined them, the God who is now conforming them to the image of Christ. That's Romans chapter 8. And so nothing can separate God's people from the love of Christ. Again, finishing the thought of that chapter 8 of, of Romans. Every child of God is eternally safe and secure. Now, my friend, if you're not a true child of God, if you're not a person who has ever come into a personal change in your heart in which you have now come to God saying, I need new life, I need a new heart, I need to have my sins covered through the blood of Christ, coming to Christ saying, I need help, spiritually speaking, you cannot make that statement. You cannot say you are safe and secure in whatever situation you're going to find yourself in. That's only for those who have come in faith to Christ, and repented of their sins. But I assure you, if you have come to Christ, and you are a true child of God by faith in Christ, no matter what storm you may be in right now, 
or what kind of storm you're about to go through in the future. Whether it be a difficult home life that seems like a storm in which you don't know how you're going to be able to weather it. Or maybe you're going through a storm of unemployment or financial disaster. The storm of cancer. The storm of a car wreck that can be so devastating on many different levels. Maybe it's, and I'm not trying to create fears, but I mean this is the world we live in, maybe it's an act of terrorism that will totally throw your world upside down. Or the storm of a divorce, or any other situation that you may encounter. The point is, what I'm trying to emphasize in this text is that for Ethelbel and for her children, they exhibited in their lives obvious courage in the midst of this unbelievably difficult crisis. And they did so with a confidence. Those children were confident that their mother was never going to abandon them. I would dare say that Paul's heart also was characterized by calm courage because he was confident in the promise that God has made to his people in Christ. And that is that God will never leave or forsake his own. Hebrews chapter 13. John chapter 10. And so I love the words of hymn number 340, which again is taken from the context of a storm on the oceans, on the seas. And he says this, the solid rock. You can look it up if you want. Verse 2, when, when darkness veils God's lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. In other words, his confidence is on what God has established in that will cannot be changed. His oath cannot be changed. His covenant cannot be broken. His, his, uh, the blood that's been uh, shed for Christ by Christ uh, has put in place these um, assurances. And he says, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Can you say you have that kind of hopeful confidence in Christ in the midst of whatever storm you may have in life? Boy, what a difference that makes when you have that assurance. Just uh, two days ago, I got a letter in the mail from my insurance carrier that has to do with my medicines. And uh, they sent me this letter that says, we would like to inform you that the medicine you've been taking, which happens to be like the last four years since I had my aorta incident, the medicine you've been taking has been, has been proven to be, uh, has an additive of, that is proven to be a carcinogen. And people, and it can cause cancer, and people have died because of it. I'm like, this is my medicine? I'm like, thanks a lot. I appreciate this medicine. It's killing me. But then I thought to myself, you read the details, you read the small print, you read the, and then they said, you know, two out of three, one out of three people die of cancer anyway. You know, so, I mean, it, you look at it back and you say, I'm not worried about those specifics because I can't control that. I did get another medicine that's not made by the manufacturer who includes poison in their pills, I'll just assure you. But, on the other, but the bigger picture is, it doesn't throw my life upside down. My life is in God's hands. I'm secure in Him. 
What a difference it makes to be a person who's able to minister to others if we ourselves can have courage in the midst of the storm. Whose are you? Who do you belong to? Another point I'd like to make here, which is actually point number three, even though it's the second point of today's message, but anyway, not only can we find strength in the bonds of Christian fellowship, we also can find rest for our souls with the assurance that we belong to God no matter what. Thirdly, I would suggest here in this text we find that if we accept difficult situations as assignments, assignments given to us by God, the God that we are called to serve. What a difference that makes. Paul spent a lot of time on ships. I came across an interesting statistic. As you recall, he had at least three missionary journeys. Now he's on the fourth journey. And they estimated, some commentator said, he had 30 years of ministry as he's traveling from place to place. And they estimated that he had traveled 3,000 miles. That's a long distance back in the day before automobiles, trains, and the like, and planes. And those trips obviously didn't always go as planned. If you look in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you can find your way there quickly, it's a very interesting text in which Paul recounts uh, various instances in which his pursuit of the assignments that God gave him to serve Christ as an apostle, as a person who took the message of Jesus to those who had not heard it or known him, before the incident here of Acts 27, because Corinthians was written before his final trip now to Rome, Paul says that he faced many difficult situations. He says during his frequent journeys, Paul faced dangers from rivers. We'd have to cross the river to get from point A to point B. They didn't have bridges a lot of places. Dangers from robbers. Dangers from his countrymen, that is the Jews, who, his fellow Jews who would start riots. And then dangers from the Gentiles, non-Jews. And then dangers from the city. Dangers in the wilderness. Dangers on the sea. He goes on to say that three times he was shipwrecked. How many of you have been shipwrecked once? None of us. Three times. And he says he spent a night and a day in the deep, meaning he's hanging on for dear life in the middle of a storm with no land nearby. Paul was not called to live a comfortable life, somehow free from threats and trouble. Paul endured all sorts of difficulties, all sorts of dangerous situations, and this is key. He endured them as part of his assignment as a servant of God. When Paul was informed that he would be arrested, this is now back in Acts 21, before this uh, very dangerous trip on the ship, he's getting ready to... Um, head over there to Jerusalem, and while in Jerusalem, this guy tells him and says, listen here, Paul, you, you need not go there, because when you're going to get there, your life is in danger. And so what is Paul's response in Acts 21? He says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready, not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord 
Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? For the master, for my master, Jesus Christ, I'm willing to die. Paul's when he's given these dangerous assignments, he doesn't make up a bunch of excuses. He doesn't somehow try to avoid hardships in his life. But he yielded his rights to his master and his Lord. And that's what I'm trying to point out here from verses 23-26 in this text. Notice he says there, The God whom I serve, the God to whom I belong, and and the God whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. That's his assignment. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep your courage, men. And he speaks to them from that context. I have with me a copy of a very significant document that's 10 years old. And I looked it up this past week in a file. This was taken from a trip we took 10 years ago. The Nietos and another couple used to go here. Uh, the Reddens and myself, we left here, went down to New Orleans uh, right after Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina, and we went to help rebuild uh, with the various ministry endeavors that were uh, coordinated and doing those kind of things. But before we left to go down there, we were required to read over a release of rights. And by the way, I have a copy of this. If you'd like to have one of your own, they're on the uh, display out here in the Welcome Center, a release of rights. And you you were encouraged to read it over and then sign it and turn it in before you left. I thought that was a very significant step to take. Here's Here's the way it reads. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his rights and his glory when he left heaven. To become a man and to serve, not to be served. And so this organization is saying, we ask you, as a person coming down to your volunteer, we ask you to consider laying down your rights on this mission trip. Not just to lay them down for better or for worse, but to entrust them to the Lord. To transfer the responsibility of your rights to a place of safekeeping. These rights may seem reasonable, but on a short missions trip, they could cause dissension. Listen, this is the kind of thing, on the one side it lists, I give up my right to a comfortable bed. And boy, oh boy, that bed was not comfortable. I'm telling you right now, the mattress was about this thick, and I sleep on my side, and my hip was killing me many times throughout the night. And you know what kept me from complaining? I signed away my rights to have a comfortable bed. So my right to a comfortable bed, familiar food, the control of circumstances around me, having pleasant circumstances, making decisions, that is, you're not in charge, you do what you're asked to do while you're there. So we give those rights up. Isn't that essentially what Paul did numerous times over the years and years? He viewed his assignment, his situation in life as this is what's been given to him by God. This is what Christ has assigned to him. And then later on in the form it says, I entrust to God 
my strength and my endurance. I entrust to God my health and my strength. I entrust to God my likes and my dislikes of food, my circumstances. I entrust them to God uh, looking for his purposes in making me more like Christ. I entrust to God my reputation, my need for recognition, whatever it is. And then here's the end. The end of the form says, I give God permission to do anything he wishes to do, sorry, anything he wishes to do to me, with me, in me, or through me that would glorify him. And then you sign your name on the line. I'm wondering, would you ever be willing to sign a document like that? A release of rights? Would you do it for one day? Would you do it for a week? Would you do it for the rest of your life? Are you willing to surrender your rights and entrust to God the things in your life that you are unable to control? Your future, your marital status, your unsafe spouse, your prodigal child, your career, your heartaches, and maybe our church's future. Years ago, I heard about a book written by Nate Palmer. I've given you a quote by him in your notes there. He wrote a book called Servanthood as Worship. And he points out the fact that servanthood has its roots in the gospel. And that our service for Christ in doing things for the kingdom, being on mission for Christ, flows out of the fact that Christ came as a servant on our behalf. And so he says, as Christians, our standing with God, our very salvation, he says, does not depend on whether we serve, but that Christ first served us. And then this quote, and this is in your notes, all our service for God begins and ends with service from God. In other words, Christ has first served us so that our service is a response to that. Jesus yielded his rights to his Father in order to serve the interests of those he came to save. And Jesus' love for the lost led him to a cross. It is his love for the lost that led him to bear our shame between two thieves, suffering abject humiliation and pain. The mission of Paul's life was to serve his master who came in lowly service, who selflessly gave his life as a ransom for many. So I wonder what would happen if we had this kind of mindset about serving Christ, being servants of Christ, what happens if we surrender ourselves to that kind of a life and where we were assigned right now. I'm sure many of you have heard the statistic. Um, fortunately, it's probably true. I don't know. I can't prove it. But uh, the statistic says it's estimated that 20% of the members of a church do, you know, they do approximately 80% of the work that goes on in a local church. Why is that? Why is that the case? 
Are you a member of the 80% who sort of say, well, I'm just going to sit back, let somebody, other, somebody else handle some of these things. I don't want to get too involved. It might make my life a little challenging, difficult. I might get criticized. So I'd like to just sit on the sidelines and just see how, how things are done, and that's probably the best place for me. My question to you would be, doesn't your heart overflow with gratitude to Christ who served you? He didn't just sit on the sidelines. He served you. He gave himself for you. Christ chose not merely to look out for his own interests, but he's, here he is looking out for your interests. People like you, when you were his enemy, when you were a person that had no interest in him. It is Christ who is giving himself for the nobodies of our society who had nothing to offer him in return. And then on the other side of the equation, are you one of the 20 percenters who serve very diligently and to exhaustion maybe at times? Do you feel like sometimes there's pressure on you that if you don't serve, as our church gets smaller and you think, oh, if I don't serve and I need to take a break, but there's really nobody here to fill in the gap. And by the way, maybe that's how we need to start training other people to fill the gaps with us. Maybe you should be serving alongside of somebody so they could fill the gap in. But you say, no, I can't take, a, take, can't take a time off here. And pretty soon, if that's your mentality, serving can become a burden, a burden based on a sense of duty only. Duty, when which we say, if we lose sight of the gospel, that duty can lead ultimately to resentment. It can lead us to the point where we are just bitter, cynical, and critical, and eventually we burn out. So the question comes to us, how do you respond? How do you respond when you think about being in ministry, when you think about serving Christ, when you think about the assignments that God could be calling you to do? When the word goes out, we need volunteers for nursery. How do you react when the call goes out for making a, f a meal for a family in crisis? Well, there's some of us that should not even attempt such things because of the safety and well-being of the family. I understand that. But some of us can help in that area. How do you react when you, you're asked to consider helping with children's church occasionally or vacation Bible school or ushering or serving on the women's ministry team or serving as, an, uh, serving as a hostess on the Christmas tea? or getting, in getting involved in the lives of the unsaved people who live across the street from you that you know full well are facing a crisis, a storm of their own? How do you respond when the unsaved person several cubicles down the hallway from where you work, you know he's going through or she's going through a storm of life? What would happen if we had a mindset of a person who is fully surrendered as servants of God. And that was your mindset in your home where you lived. How would your selfless service to your spouse honor Christ? How would that express Christ-like love in the context where you live? What keeps you from that mindset? Have you lost sight of the gospel? Have you lost sight of who you are in Christ because Christ served you? I'm telling you, there's a real danger in today's world that people are so wrapped up in themselves. All they want to do is surround themselves with their own little entertainment, their own little world of video, whatever they're doing, 
They're totally oblivious to the world of needs of other people around them. And it's even the basic things that are, whether it's the stack of dishes in the sink or the bathrooms that need to be cleaned or whatever it is that goes on around them, they're totally oblivious to all those things because they're so wrapped up. They don't have the mindset of a servant. It's a real challenge for us in today's world. How would you respond to the headaches at work? If your supervisor at work asked you to do this assignment or that assignment, and you responded with the mindset of a servant that said, Lord, this is my assignment. I'm going to give myself to it as unto you. How would you respond to the needs of your children who have given you a headache or two throughout that day? And here they are in need of further help before you finally can lay your head down wearily on your bed at night. How do you respond to your children if you were to say, Lord, I am your servant. Here's my assignment. I'm offering this unto you. I assure you that if you find yourself in a difficult situation, don't think to yourself, man, somehow I've gotten off track here and I'm on a detour here, and I need to get back onto the path and to the street of Easy Street. Couldn't it be more properly interpreted as saying, no, the Lord, you have led me into this situation. You've led me into this difficulty. You've led me into this assignment, and I am your servant. And therefore, Lord, show me how my life can make a difference to the people around me, particularly people who are not saved, people who are unbelievers, outsiders. Help me, Lord, to respond with a mindset that says, I'm going to surrender to you as a true servant. I am not going to be one dictating to you saying, Lord, you've got to make this right, or I'm not going to praise you or have an attitude willing to serve you or think about anybody else around me until you make things right. That's not an attitude of a servant. That's the attitude of someone who says, I want to be in charge. The thing is, I'm convinced that Paul was so familiar with the outlines of the gospel that his heart resonated with serving is what it's all about. Even in dangerous, difficult situations, I do so with a heartbeat that says, I once was lost, and I went into a very difficult situation, and God stopped me in my tracks so that I might see the truth and understand who he is and who I'm called to be. And now I'm on assignment for him and what he wants me to do. I'm going to close with this. I have on the back side of the sheet that had the release of rights is a poem in which I heard when I was in college, and it's been tremendously helpful for me numerous times. It's, it, the poem is Disappointment, His Appointment. Change one letter, then I see that the thwarting of my purpose is God's better choice for me. His appointment must be blessing though it may come in disguise, for, it, for the end, from the beginning, open to his vision, lies. And there's three more verses, I'll let you read them. But disappointment in your life this week, can you look at it from a different point of view and say, this is his appointment for me. I'm on, I'm on assignment because I'm his servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we admit that we struggle, Lord. It is so hard to release our rights. It is hard for us, Lord, to be willing to yield 
ourselves to someone else to make ourselves vulnerable, to make ourselves in many ways open to complications and disappointments and all sorts of struggles. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we face whatever's ahead of us or even now, the, the difficult circumstances. I pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord. Show us that we are not the kind of strong, independent people we want to be and often long to be, but, Lord, that we are desperately in need of you, that our hearts are full of idols, that we want to be in control of things, we want to have things go our way because we want to be God. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that that life leads only to bondage, leads only to attempts to try to live in the darkness instead of living in the fullness of your love, enjoying the security of being your child by faith. And I pray that you would, Father, help us in whatever storms that we are in, that you may get our attention and that we may humbly yield ourselves to you, that we might give up whatever it is that we're hanging on to, clinging to, grasping. Lord, teach us to be fully surrendered and to be doing so out of a heart of joy and glad surrender in light of what Christ surrendered for us. We pray in his name. Amen.